everyone? Welcome back to another brand new episode of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. And we in America are less than one week away until Election Day. And it seems that no matter who wins, there's going to be a whole lot of pissed off people. And we'll spend the coming weeks after the election talking about that and how, as a country, we can hopefully begin to move on from what has been an absolutely awful four years of a presidency. On this week's episode, we're going to pick off where we left off from last week, and we're going to continue discussing James Baldwin's essay, A Talk to Teachers. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on it. I'll read over some specific passages, talk a little bit about it, what it means for our society today, having relevancy 60 years after the fact. I'm also going to play a short clip from Baldwin talking about education. I believe the clip was from the late 60s, early 70s. I couldn't find a date on it. Uh, if somebody happens to know the, the date, please reach out to me and let me know. Um, I will have a link to that in the show notes as well. As I said at the very top of the show, we're less than a week away from the presidential election in the United States, and this country is absolutely on edge. As I said, one way or another, there's going to be a large number of people unhappy with the results, people going to be wanting change, whether change actually comes from the election or not. It's an unprecedented time in my life with a presidential election and the outcome being so important and hinging on two very different ideologies. I'm 41 years old. I've never seen the country as divisive as it is now. I know the United States has a long history of deep divisions within it, as we've talked about previously on the show, and so many times Baldwin spoke about the division in his time. And that division is, for a lack of a better phrase, one that the president likes to use. It's putting up walls between people, between people that might otherwise agree on a great many topics, but because of the language being used, because of the anger permeating on both sides, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, people are mad, they're angry, they're disgusted, they're fed up. And it's going to be very interesting to see the results next week, because I do think some people have speculated that we won't know until the end of uh, November the election results. I don't think it, that's going to be the case. I think we're going to know. It might be very late into the night, but I think we're going to know on election night the results of the election. And it's going to be interesting to see how this country responds. Because like it or not, a bunch of people are going to be pissed off with whoever the president is and are going to want change. And 
the change needs to be a continual process. It can't be one concrete thing and say, okay, we've changed. We've done X, Y, or Z, and we've now changed as a country because that's not going to happen. So my hope is that, and yes, I am very biased. I hope Joe Biden wins the election. He is by no means the perfect candidate, but he is a hell of a lot better than the alternative. My hope is some of the rhetoric he's been using, talking about making big systemic change, he follows through on that should he win the election. But it's going to take the legwork and the grunt work of all the people that have been protesting over and over, that have signed petitions, that have written letters to congressmen and women, who have voiced their opinions of unsatisfactory leadership in this country, to continue to push, if Biden is elected, push him to keep some of his promises that he said he would follow through on. Make sure he does see this change that he talks about, see it through to the end. And maybe, just maybe, we actually will, for once in this country, sustain some real change. And the outlook will be much brighter for more than just white Americans. With all that being said, I want to get into the Baldwin essay as soon as possible. So after this short break, I'm going to play about a three and a half minute clip of Baldwin talking about education in this country. I'll discuss that and then we'll get into a talk to teachers. I'll be back right after this. I'll do my best. I, 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 I'll begin with the public school situation, which I know more about. And that's a very, it's a very difficult question to answer, too. It's a difficult answer because, first of all, it's, um, it's, um, you can't begin to answer without feeling terribly futile. And, um, look, the truth is it's very hard to talk about education in this country without talking about the whole society in which it, in which it mainly fails to occur. Um, you can't, um, you can hardly talk about schools, you know, without talking about cities. And the cities are in the hands of financiers. The cities are in the hands of pirates, thugs. And our children, therefore, are therefore um, are victims of, of this, are victims of um, the, the principles according to which the country is run. The country is not run according to the, you know, either the will of its citizens, I hope, all the good of its citizens, I know that, but for profit, for money, to make money. And education is a billion dollar industry. And the least important part of that industry is the child. I think this is a criminal, but this is the way it works. Now, the public education uh, in the city in which I grew up, you know, is, um, is enough to break the heart, you know, enough, to, enough to make you want to kill. But, and when we are tried, and we try it again, and we try it over and over and over again, to educate our children ourselves, to um, to be responsible for the teaching, the curriculum, for the books. Uh, we did that for three years in New York some years ago, and the experiment succeeded for three years. And because it succeeded, it was crash. 
smashed and smashed by the Board of Education, the Teachers Union, and Albany. You know, so that is what you're up against. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what one's, one's up against. As for the enrollment at this college, um, let's face it, um, black people in this country have a terrible time just getting through 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> It's absolutely true, you know. And education, it's hard to talk about education in a country in which a literacy is, is, is um, literacy is adored. It's hard, to talk, it's hard to talk about education in a country where people take seriously some, such a creature as John, as John Wayne and Ronald Reagan. You know. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I really am not trying to be funny, it's true, you know. And for a black person to get an education in this country, he's, he's got to have a lot of guts, first of all. And to endure, I'm sorry, you know, be, I don't mean to be rude, but this institution is like many other institutions, and which, which means it's a racist institution. Amen. There's no way around that. All the American institutions are racist. And to get an education under those circumstances is a tremendous act of the will. And also you risk schizophrenia. <laughs> I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this because I think black people should not be educated. But I am saying that black people edu very largely educate themselves. What one do? What, what you have to do is pick up the tools, and with your own intention. You know, that's the trick. So one thing I want to touch on there is when Baldwin said that for a black person to get an education in this country, it takes guts. And we've talked to a lot of people on this show that went to the University of Wisconsin. And it did take a lot of guts for them to go to that institution because as we've documented on this show, it is a racist institution. But then again, so as Baldwin said, so is every institution in this country. So for those people that had guts enough to have the courage to stand up to a racist institution, to put themselves in situation after situation where they were the minority and were looked down upon, were talked about negatively, were fearful to even go out and walk on campus even in the daytime, let alone at night, for them to make that sacrifice, be willing to put themselves in danger over and over again, it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And they should be celebrated and thanked because for them to take those steps and to have the courage and strength of belief in themselves enough to every day look into the eyes of an institution that disregards them and views them as second class, for them to succeed in that situation is nothing short of remarkable. Now, as I said last week, as I read through 
I talk to teachers, there's going to be language that makes people uncomfortable. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, do I say these words that I know hold power and put black people in a very negative situation and connotation? But I still want to be true to Baldwin's work and his words. But for the sake of having a greater respect, not only for Baldwin, but the diaspora as a whole, instead of saying that N-word that is so nasty, so divisive, so nasty, I will instead just say the N-word. So the first passage I want to read comes about halfway through the essay, and it's this. The point of all this is that black men were brought here as a source of chief labor. They were indispensable to the economy. In order to justify the fact that men were treated as though they were animals, the white republic had to brainwash itself into believing that they were, indeed, animals and deserved to be treated like animals. Therefore, it is almost impossible for any Negro child to discover anything about his actual history. The reason is that this animal, once he suspects his own worth, once he starts believing that he is a man, has begun to attack the entire power structure. This is why America has spent such a long time keeping the Negro in his place. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that it is not an accident. It was not an act of God. It was not done by well-meaning people muddling into something which they didn't understand. It was a deliberate policy hammered into place in order to make money from black flesh. And now, in 1963, because we have never faced this fact, we are in intolerable trouble. Again, replace 1963 with 2020. Nothing has changed. In those 57 years since he made this speech and wrote this essay, nothing has changed. For so many movies, books, television shows, songs have portrayed black men as nothing more than animals. Something to be feared, something to be shunned, something to be stayed away from, something that we as a society need to control, because if we can control that quote-unquote animal, then as white people, as society, we can then feel safe. But we disregard the safety of the black community, because we need to create this animal in order for us to feel safe. And it was done this way from as we've said over and over since the first slaves were brought here over 400 years ago. And the history of slavery did that over and over to subjugate black men as beasts, as animals, as nothing more than a worker that had no mind, no way to lift themselves up because they were too stupid and all they were good for is labor. Substitute that idea with the idea of 
people telling LeBron James he should shut up and dribble or that Colin Kaepernick is somehow wrong for kneeling during the national anthem to call attention to police brutality in this country. You have to remember that segregation in the society took place for well over 300 years. It wasn't until the mid-50s and some places into the 60s before segregation was abolished. So we're looking at 60 years or less since integration has been happening in the society. And as much as I hate to say it, yes, it takes time for change to happen, as I said earlier. And as much as somebody like myself, who I, you know, I consider myself a co-conspirator, an ally in the plight of black folks in this country, do I want radical systemic change? Absolutely, because black people deserve it. But when you look at the long tide of history and how for over 300 years the races were segregated and now we're just beginning to kind of still this country in its formative years trying to rid itself of that history and reconcile itself with that history, it's going to take time. As much as I hate telling people to be patient, they just need to be patient. And as I said at the beginning of the show, maybe if Joe Biden is elected and he follows through on some of these promises he's made over the last several months, maybe then the process will be sped up a little bit because it is long overdue. The next passage I want to read is this. In order for me to live, I decided very early that some mistakes had been made somewhere. I was not an N-word, even though you called me one. But if I was an N-word in your eyes, there was something about you. There was something you needed. I had to realize when I was very young that I was none of those things I was told I was. I was not, for example, happy. I never touched a watermelon for all kinds of reasons that had been invented by white people. And I knew enough about life by this time to understand that whatever you invent, whatever you project, is you. So where we are now is that a whole country of people believe I'm an N-word, and I don't, and the battle's on. Because if I am not what I've been told I am, then it means that you're not what you thought you were either, and that is the crisis. So we have to look here. We have to look why this country and those in power felt the need to create the N-word. And I'm not saying the word, but why we had to put that label on another human being. And as I talked about a couple minutes ago, it's this idea in the history of slavery that black men and women were looked at as nothing more than free labor, that They did not have the capacity for free will. They did not have the capacity to think for themselves. They were inferior human beings if they were even thought of as human beings. So in order for white society to make that distinction, they had to put a label on those people to make them feel inferior, but also make 
white people feel superior. And then we have to think, what does this say about white people and their history? Because we know what white people did. They went to Africa. They stole people. They stole millions of people. And they erased history. They erased African history. And they rewrote what history would become in Western civilization and the Americas because of all the male and female black bodies they stole and brought to this hemisphere. So in order for those white men to prosper, in order for them to be able to justify what they were doing, in order for them to be able to sleep at night with a clear conscience, they had to create this N-word. They needed this label so that they could pass it down from generation to generation as a way to signal to other people that I am a superior white person while this N-word is inferior, subservient, and nothing but a labor tool in order for me to make money. And obviously, this is just, we can look in 2020 and realize this is just ridiculous thinking. And why, when these white folks were also toting religion and trying to convert people to Christianity, how on one hand they could hold the Bible, yet on the other hand they held the whip or a gun and demean another segment of humans so horribly. The next passage I want to read is personally very important to me and my work, which I will get into after I read it. It is not really a Negro revolution that is upsetting the country. What is upsetting the country is a sense of its own identity. If, for example one managed to change the curriculum in all the schools so that Negroes learned more about themselves and their real contributions to this culture, you would be liberating not only Negroes, you'd be liberating white people who know nothing about their own history. And the reason is that if you are compelled to lie about one aspect of anybody's history, you must lie about it all. If you have to lie about my real role here, if you have to pretend that I hoed all that cotton just because I loved you, then you have done something to yourself. You are mad. And it's this passage that was really the spark and the inspiration for my ideas of a Baldwinian pedagogy that I talked about a few episodes ago. This idea of re-educating not only children and students in this country, but everybody in this country about America's true history. And when I say America's history, I don't mean white America. I mean white, black, native histories, all as one. You combine all those history because it's not separate histories. It's one lived experience history. We were all in this together. We played different roles which have 
made us now into different categories and made us separate from one another, but we're not separate. We've talked about this over and over, and Baldwin spoke about it so much. We're brothers. We're sisters. We are one in the same. And if you can't accept that very foundational truth, then there's nothing that can be done to help you. You're gone. But because of that foundational truth, we are all brothers, we are all sisters. We have this shared history. If we can teach that shared history, the roles each of us played, how we have changed since then, how we can still change from all of our history, then maybe there is hope for us. Now, I say there's hope for us, but that doesn't mean that we don't have work to do because we have a ton of work to do, and it's hard work. It's uncomfortable work, but it's work that needs to be done because it's work worth doing, and it's worth doing because we can change the future of our country. We can't change the past. As the president liked to say about 200,000 people dying from COVID-19, it is what it is. But if we can reconcile that past, if we can understand it, the true history, understand that history of how white people stole a whole continent of people, killed an entire continent of natives on this land, set this land up for themselves off the free enslaved labor of Africans. If we can reconcile that, we can understand that, then there is hope for us. The last part, the last passage I want to read is the last passage of the speech. And it's this. I began by saying that one of the paradoxes of education was that precisely at the point when you begin to develop a conscience, you must find yourself at war with your society. It is your responsibility to change society if you think of yourself as an educated person. And on the basis of this, of that evidence, the moral and political evidence, one is compelled to say that this is a backward society. Now, if I were a teacher in this school or any Negro school, and I was dealing with Negro children who were in my care only a few hours of every day and would then return to their homes and to the streets, children who have an apprehension of their future, which with every hour grows grimmer and darker, I would try to teach them. I would try to make them know that those streets, those houses, those dangers, those agonies by which they are surrounded are criminal. I would try to make each child know that these things are the result of a criminal conspiracy to destroy him. I would teach him that if he intends to get to be a man, he must at once decide that he is stronger than this conspiracy and that he must never make his peace with it. And that one of his weapons for refusing to make his peace with it and for destroying it depends on what he decides he is worth. I would teach him that there are currently very few standards in this country which are worth a man's respect. That it is up to him to change these standards for the sake of the life and health of the country. I would suggest to him that the popular culture as represented, for example, on television and in comic books and in movies, 
is based on fantasies created by very ill people, and he must be aware that these are fantasies that have nothing to do with reality. I would teach him that the press he reads is not as free as it says it is, and that he can do something about that too. I would try to make him know that just as American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it, so is the world larger, more daring, more beautiful, and more terrible, but principally larger, and that it belongs to him. I would teach him that he doesn't have to be bound by the expediencies of any given administration, any given policy, any given morality, that he has the right and the necessity to examine everything. I would try to show him that one has not learned anything about Castro when one says he is a communist. This is a way of his learning something about Castro, something about Cuba, something in time about the world. I would suggest to him that his, he is living at the moment in an enormous province. America is not the world, and if America is going to be, become a nation, she must find a way, and this child must help her find a way, to use a tremendous potential and tremendous energy with which this child represents. If this country does not find a way to use that energy, it will be destroyed by that energy. So again, it's about looking at our history, reconciling with our history, being honest with ourselves about who we were, who we are, and who we want to be. If we can be honest about who we were, take a good long look, be honest about who we are, there's hope for who we want to be in the future. The fact, again, that Baldwin said this 57 years ago, and here we are a week away from the most important presidential election of my lifetime, as I said, and his words ring as true now as they did back then. It's so imperative that we take what Baldwin said and turn it into action. And as I said earlier, it's a continual action. We can't rest on our laurels and think, oh, because now a majority of people are on the side of the Black Lives Matter movement that we can rest. We can't. We need to keep pushing forward. We need to be aggressive. We need to keep putting the pressure on our leaders to represent us in the way that we want to be represented. They work for us. Americans need to remember that and never forget it. Elected officials work for us. They may be bought and sold and paid for by corporations. That's another matter. But they work for us. We have the power. For people out there that say, my vote doesn't count, so I'm not going to vote, or it doesn't matter. No, it matters. If you believe you have power, you can have power. And collectively, if we believe we can have power, we will have power. 
as I've said so many times on this show, Baldwin has the answers for all of our ales. If we take the time, we read, we spend time in thought, we spend, most importantly, time with one another to talk, to get to know, to develop the intimate relations that Baldwin has talked about so many times. That yes, we are brothers and sisters. If we build that relationship in that way, if you see me as your brother, I see you as my brother or sister. If we lay that as a foundation, we build up from there, we can make change. All right, right after this short break, I will get to the songs of the week. All right, a reminder that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening from, and please leave a five-star rating. All right, the songs of the week this week. The first one is Public Enemy Fight the Power, but it's not the original Public Enemy Fight the Power song that was released on the 1989 soundtrack of Do the Right Thing. It is an updated version for 2020 that has many guest artists on it, and it's updated for the current political and social climate. Again, I will have a link to the video in the show notes. It's very powerful, very moving. The second song is even more powerful and more moving, and it is by an artist that I absolutely love and adore. And if I could only listen to one singer the rest of my life, it would probably be this singer. And the song is Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. She released the song in 1939. It was adapted from a poem written by Abel Mirapol about lynchings in the United States. Again, one of the most powerful and emotional songs ever made. And Holiday refused to stop singing this song in concerts and around the country. And she was actually, her career suffered because of that, because she felt so powerfully about the song and the message it was sending that she was compelled that regardless of what would happen to her, she would sing the song so people would know about what was happening to black folks in this country. And there's actually going to be a documentary released, I believe, in the middle of November about Billie Holiday that I'm sure I will absolutely talk about on this show. Because as I said, she is just an absolute love of mine and I could listen to her sing forever. So I want to thank you guys for joining me this week. One week to go in this crazy election train, and then we will find out who the next president is, and we'll move on from there. 
But again, as I said earlier, we got to start coming together, regardless of who's in office. We need to come together because we're all brothers and sisters. Take care of yourself and each other. I will talk to you next week. Peace. Mm -hmm.